How many of you want to go back to middle school health class? Anybody? You know, I felt like maybe my, a lot of my peers and my colleagues that grew up in the 90s, there seemed to be this kind of ethos that was part of health classes in America and also part of youth groups in America in the 90s. It was this tactic. Scare the heck out of teenagers about sex, and that might keep them from having premarital sex. And that meant, let's show as many horrible pictures, things that can happen, STDs. I remember in high school, they made me carry around a sack of flour for a whole week. This is what will happen. You know, there's a baby. You know, you don't want to have a baby when you're a teenager. All those things to scare us. Maybe you had that experience. Maybe you didn't. And maybe you've been anticipating what we're getting to here in the Ten Commandments, and you feel like this is going to be a flashback to your health class in middle school or youth group. And you're bracing yourself for the awkwardness of this commandment, fear tactics, whatever it might be. Well, I'm here to relieve you this morning. You can stop gritting your teeth, clenching your fists, holding on to your chair. Because I want us to come away, not with a negative picture from this commandment, but instead a picture of the beauty of God's faithfulness. So here is the big idea I will give you right at the beginning so you have it. This is what we're going to try to communicate through this commandment this morning. The reason God commanded us not to commit adultery is because in abiding by it, we can experience his faithfulness to us. The reason God commanded us not to commit adultery is because in abiding by it, we can experience his faithfulness to us. Well, let's look at God's word together, shall we? Here it is, Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 18. And you shall not commit adultery. The word of the Lord. For just joining us, welcome. We've been going through the Ten Commandments this summer. We take different books of the Bible in genre form in semesters, fall semester, spring, and summer. In the summer, we go through wisdom literature. We've gone through apocalyptic literature, and now we're going through the law. In the fall, we go through the Old Testament, going through um, rotating between the prophets and narrative, and Old Testament narrative. In the spring, we go through the gospels and the epistles. But we decided to take on the Ten Commandments this summer. And we'll be doing that all the way to the end, 13 weeks of it, one week as an intro, two weeks as conclusion. And here we are on the seventh commandment. This is a huge topic that could go in so many ways. We could talk about marriage. We could talk about the Christian sexual ethic. We could talk about cultural issues surrounding LGBTQ issues. We do not shy away from these issues in the church, but I cannot address them all this morning. It's really been interesting what's happened in the church over the past 20 years. There has become a better theology 
of sex, a theology of the body, a theology of marriage that has been part of a lot of Christian spheres, which is very, very healthy. Instead of just giving marriage tips, giving purity culture, the church is starting to see there is a message that we can give that encompasses the word of God that we can live in. I've been influenced by a lot of these thinkers. I will give you a few of them, their names, so I'm not plagiarizing a lot of their thoughts I'm having today come from them. Ultimately, they come from the word of God. Christopher West has written some really good things, said some really good things. He's a part of a group called Theology of the Body. Tim Keller has been writing some really good things on this topic, his book, The Meaning of Marriage. Gary Thomas has been writing some great things on this topic in a book called Sacred Marriage. And Sam Alberry, which I think out of Great Britain, has written some really good things when it comes to the Christian sexual ethic, especially in an age where people are um, a part of this idea of identifying sexual identity. So these are some good people that I've kind of referenced and thought through and listened to over the years. I'm going to combine some of these thoughts together. Two times we have the Ten Commandments clearly laid out in the Old Testament. Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. And we see that these commandments that are given, many people see as kind of vows between God and Israel. These are the commitments that Israel should abide by. And if they do so, it will go well for them, like marriage vows. And we see that that idea of marriage vows and the Ten Commandments, and seeing it that way, plays out in the Old Testament how we see our relationship with God. God is often used as the bridegroom in the Old Testament, and Israel as the bride. That is carried on into the New Testament, where we see Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. Over and over again in the Old Testament, we see the Lord as a loving husband. His care, his provision for his people, that sets up the Ten Commandments. I delivered you from slavery in Egypt. This is a loving husband that comes and cares for Israel and the people. And because that illustration goes throughout the scriptures, we see in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, Hosea, in the New Testament, the book of James, adultery language too in our relationship with God. If his followers follow other gods, other nations, idols, other things, they break the vows. It says that we are cheating on God, that we are adulterers. And that language is used over and over again in the Old Testament. When Israel wanders from God, he calls them adulterers. That they're committing adultery against him. A caring and loving husband. Now, many of you thought we were going through the second table of the law. Remember, there's two tables law. The first four commandments talk about our vertical relationship with God. And the last six talk about the horizontal, our relationship with others. And now I've just been talking about this vertical relationship with God. When I talk about our relationship as the bride and him as the bridegroom, what gives? I thought we were talking about our horizontal relationships. I want to read a quote. It's from William A. Van Gameren. He taught Old Testament at Trinity 
He says something very powerful about the Ten Commandments. It's very simple. He says this. The Ten Commandments is a summary of the moral law or a guide in the imitation of God. It teaches us how God loves us and then how we should reflect it in our lives. You see, all of the Ten Commandments show the character of God. He values life. Do not murder. He values faithfulness. Do not commit adultery. Where do we see most clearly, horizontally, faithful relationship and love? Before governments, before schools, before sports, before all the institutions we can think of in our world, there was marriage in the beginning. One man and one woman united together. And that was the picture that God gave us, that this man was wanting, and he created a helper, woman, that together united, there would be beauty. See, in this intimate place, in marriage, we get a glimpse of the great love that God has for us. Two becoming one, union. And in that picture, in that sign, we can see even more fully our union with Christ. Now, I'm not dumb. We are in the age of the sexual revolution. Again, the counterculture of the sexual revolution is on 50 years, and we have just lived and breathed that kind of culture. Just what I've grown up in. And in that culture, Many times we think of the Christian sexual ethic as conservative or backwards. But if we had a fuller and better understanding of history, it's actually not the Christian sexual ethic that came first. I encourage you, if you want to read history about how sex was viewed in the Roman world, the Greek world, and other nations, it was not the Christian sexual ethic. It was probably worse than it was today in the views of what sex was. And that thinking of the old age, of the Roman culture and things like that, that is what we have now again today. Actually, I think we're suited very well as Christians to be in the minority culture because that's what the early church was and giving the Christian sexual ethic to the culture, the Roman culture around them. And the kind of ethos of that sexual culture is sex is sex. It's just a refrain I see. And when someone says that, they're meaning that sex can be divided from actual union, emotional union, relational union, spiritual union. That it can be divorced. It can just be this physical thing. I've received this accusation, and many of my colleagues in the church, the evangelical church, have received this accusation that we talk about sex too much in the church. 
I'll just be honest about what we do here at Emmaus Road. We've addressed it when it's come up in the scriptures. 1 Corinthians has talked about it. We went through the whole book of Song of Songs, wisdom literature, as we went through in the summer a few years back. And here again, we're at it in this seventh commandment. I actually don't think we address the issue too much. I, in fact, think the culture thinks we address it too much because it hits their idols. When Aaron and I talk about cleaning the house or cleaning our rooms, there are a couple girls in our house, I won't name names, that think we talk about cleaning rooms too often. Do you think those are the ones that have clean rooms? In the same way, when we talk about the Christian sexual ethic, it hits people in our culture because it's such an idol. I, I don't think we even realize it. I was watching a Walmart commercial. A Walmart commercial. And someone talked about finding their authentic self in the Walmart commercial. And I wonder, what are they saying? And do you know what they talked about finding their authentic self? their sexual identity. That's how much that has become part of our culture. See, when we see intimacy, when we see sex in light of union with God, we can have a fuller understanding of it. It does not become the end-all, be-all. Life does not revolve around hookups, or sexual identity. No, instead, it points to something greater. It points to the wedding feast that will come. It points to our union with Christ. I've said this before, I'll say it again, and it's a shock to many Christians. There will not be marriage in heaven. That's what Jesus says. Because we will be, I think, because we will be so united with one another. Such love and intimacy among all of us together. I worked in Boulder, Colorado for two years. And on the drive into Boulder on Highway 93, there is this open field. There's really no tree in sight anywhere in this field, but there's just this one glorious tree. I hope it's still there. And the people of Boulder, they, they call it the wedding tree because so many people take wedding photos in front of this tree. Why was this such a majestic place to take pictures? Is it because of the tree? No. It's what's behind the tree. The flat irons. If you ever seen the flat irons in Boulder, these majestic mountains that pop up right there in the foothills. Crazy beautiful. You can take a picture in front of any tree, but this tree is special because the mountains that are behind it. In the same way, intimacy, marriage, sex, they are beautiful things. 
but they are beautiful because what stands behind it. The beauty of God. Intimacy with Him. His love. He gave us sex. He gave us marriage to point to how good He is. Here's the thing, behind this negative prohibition, you shall not commit adultery, is this nagging feeling. The law is restrictive. It's not for our benefit. It will not make us free. I heard these accusations all the time, and maybe you have those in your minds about the Christian sexual ethic, that Sex is between one man and one woman within the covenant of marriage. That sounds so restrictive. I think we forget the seventh commandment comes in the context of God's provision and his love for Israel. I freed you. You were slaves and now you are free. I'm giving you this so you can live in that freedom. Sometimes we turn to 1 Corinthians 6, where it talks very clearly about fleeing sexual immorality. And we do not realize the context that it's in. For five chapters, Paul has pointed out God's care and grace for us, the indicatives, what has come before. My care and love for you. And then come the imperatives, what you are supposed to do. Sometimes I feel like our culture ignores what Jesus actually says. Do you know in Mark chapter 7, Jesus strongly rebukes sexual immorality? That the word that he uses for sexual immorality, porneia, encompasses all those things of sex, of sex outside the confines of marriage between one man and one woman. No way! Jesus can't say those things, right? He's inclusive. He's loving. There's no way he would restrict love is love. No, Jesus saying love is in these confines. That is where love is truly expressed. 1 Timothy chapter 1. We see again the 10 commandments especially the second table of the law laid out all of these things. Before Paul goes again to the second table, he says this, we know the law is good. Could freedom, intimacy, love be found in the faithfulness of marriage? It is no coincidence that in Scripture, it talks about man and woman in intimacy, in sex, becoming one. Exposing yourself, warts and all, literally, warts and all, 
to someone else. And that person that you have given yourself to, all of yourself to, accepting you for who you are. Why would God do something like this? Because it is a picture of the gospel. That God loves us unconditionally. All of who we are, and he is faithful to us through Christ, even in our sin, that he will forgive us. That is unconditional love. And in marriage, we get a picture of God's love for us. Now you can imagine the pain of giving yourself to someone and then they go to someone else, something better. Can you imagine the betrayal? For some of you, you can. Or for some of you that have given yourself to someone else, but you think it is not enough. There has to be something more. I want the chase. I want the images. There must be something more. You might not know this, but in the 19th century, someone predicted Tinder. Soren Kierkegaard. He wrote a book, The Diary of the Seducer. And in that, he follows this seducer man who journals about going after woman, after woman, after woman. But there's this one woman he really wants, Cordelia. And he goes after her for months. And then he finally gets her. And he says this, Now all resistance is impossible. And only as long as that is present is it beautiful to love. When it is ended, there is only weakness and habit. I do not wish to be reminded of my relation to her. She has lost the fragrance. You see, when you go after relationship after relationship, intimacy after intimacy, you are trying to find a cure, a cure for your ailment. And you might think, well, I'm trying to find it in someone else. If I have this relationship, if I am in this intimate thing, I will be complete. But the truth is, where you're really trying to find satisfaction is in your own desires and yourself. Instead of actually trying to take the step of love. Where you die to yourself to give yourself to someone else. And in that, where you finally find love. That's what Kierkegaard was trying to communicate. He was a Christian. And he anticipated what would happen in the 20th and 21st century where people would just go after relationship after relationship to find fulfillment. And he was saying, no, it is found in covenant. 
in commitment. Some of you might think, well, good thing I don't fall into this category of an adulterer. Well, again, we have to go to the law of categories and how Jesus opens up it to us. And he says, the Sermon on the Mount, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Images, fantasies, not just talking to men, talking to women too. See, intimacy outside of covenant commitment with someone waters down what it was meant for. The emotional, mental, spiritual unity. In simply fantasizing, in simply looking at images, we divorce beauty from its attended purpose. Someone else. In commitment. The Italians, of course, have the best things to say about love, right? This is one of former Italian prime minister said this. The strongest evidence to prove that God exists is a beautiful woman. But let's take that deeper. Where is that beauty found? Not by that woman revealing it to everyone, exposing herself to all people. No, it is found in her being fully known by someone in commitment. My wife is beautiful. She is gorgeous. She is gorgeous because I have known the depths of her heart. That is what has made her more beautiful, more gorgeous. And I can look at her as she grows older and I can say 100% in belief, you are more beautiful every day you age. Every extra wrinkle you get, every gray hair you have, you are more beautiful to me because I know you more and more and more. I'll illustrate it one more time. We have beautiful artwork in our home. Monet, Hopper, O'Keefe. But that artwork does not take the prominence in our home. Instead, it's watercolors and chalk and markers of rainbows, owls and trees. They're beautiful not because where they hang. They're beautiful because they're made by my daughters. Hear me, Monet and Hopper and O'Keefe are exquisite. But I don't have a relationship with the artist.
When we see beautiful people, we can say, look at that. That is great. God made beauty. But true beauty is found in knowing, in touching, in committing to that person, seeing them for how they were made, not in fantasy or objectifying them. This is something that we can only see in covenant commitment. You only get that at coming into a gallery that no one else has come into, to a painting made by God that no one else can see. Phil Riken, pastor at 10th Presbyterian, he says something that sometimes I don't feel like I had the boldness to say, but I'll say it through him. He was talking about the beauty of singleness. He's also saying how it's not fair that good Christian women in his church suffer for the good of a Christian man. And he called out the single people in his church, I think predominantly the single men in his church. And he said, you need to turn that inward angst that sexual desire. Turn all of that to sanctify yourself. To sanctify yourself towards sacrifice and submission and faithfulness towards love of someone else. Don't just sit in it, but instead let it drive you to actually living a life to dying to marrying someone else. Some of you might need to hear that. Instead of the chase and the game, oh, it's so hard. I'm not trying to belittle the hardness of being single. But maybe exerting that energy into saying, I will sacrifice to love someone else. Some of us are called to singleness, and that is a beautiful thing that the scripture points out as even greater than marriage. Again, pointing to the greater thing, God. But some of us are letting it burn way too much rather than making sacrifices to marry. Right, Phil Riken said it, and I didn't. Well, again, Christianity gets a bad rap. Even the word Puritan, right? It's, it's equal to being prudish or sexually repressive. How far from the truth that is about the Puritans? The Puritans were passionate people when it came to talking about sex. They talked and wrote about intimacy. In fact, in the 1950s, the Yale Library would not publicly publicly display some of the Puritan writers because they were too graphic about sex. The Puritans! You know, in Puritan America, there was church discipline for husbands that didn't fulfill the sexual duties to their wives. They would be put in the stocks for not fulfilling sexual duties to their wives. How about that church discipline case, right? Here's the thing. They understood the beauty 
of sex. That is a picture of God's love. It makes sense. Something so beautiful can cause such harm. I'm a huge fan of Augustine, and I like what Augustine says about sin. God made everything good. Sin is when we take what is good and we taint it. When we use it for our own devices. That is what's happened with sex in our culture. It has caused much pain and abuse and trauma. Physical intimacy has a strong pull on us. It is powerful. For some of us, we have wounds. Wounds that we carry into our adulthood. Maybe from parents that did not treat us the way we should have been treated. Fathers do not love their kids in the way they should be loved. Moms do not love their kids in the way they should be loved. And I believe, and many writers have said, to heal those wounds, we have gone after false intimacy. Even after people that will hurt us and use us. We try to fill these wounds with something like physical intimacy. And it is an addiction that is very, very hard to break. Infidelity, pornography, multiple partners. Some of us have been hurt by others that have done this. Some of us have done it ourselves. And then because we continue in that cycle, you might feel unwanted. And then you're in this vicious cycle you feel you cannot break out of. To fill the wound. I've only used one Matt Chandler illustration in all of my sermon days, and I'll go back to it again. But it is very good. And I wish I had come up with it myself. But Matt Chandler went to a church service with a friend of his that was dealing with this shame. A lot of shame when it came with their past and sex. And of course it came on a week where the pastor was going to talk about sex. And the pastor used an illustration of a rose. And he had the rose at the beginning of his sermon and he passed it around. I said, I want everyone to take this and I just want you to each touch the rose. And, you know, it was a church of like a thousand people, so all these people are touching it. At the very end of the sermon, he's, where's, where's that rose? And he gets it and, it, you know, it's all like deteriorated, right? It's all 
wonky and junky. And he says, you see what happens when you give your body? This is what happens to you. Who wants this? Who wants a rose like this? And here is Matt Chandler sitting next to his friend with so much shame. And he said, it took all of me not to say, Jesus wants the rose. He wants that. You know, I never saw this until I was written to Christopher West. You know, the Samaritan woman, she has said, you've had five husbands, and now the one you're with, the sixth, is not your husband. And here is Jesus saying, I have water that will fulfill you. You think she had wounds? You better believe it. Who was the seventh man? The complete man. There he was. Christ himself. I don't want to leave you with a picture of condemnation. But a picture of hope. That can fill any wound. And some of you are really wounded in this area. There is one that is greater than any partner. Any sexual encounter. There is one that wants to be with you even in your faithlessness. Because he is faithful. Here is a picture of the complete husband, the bridegroom, that's saying, come, take me in. You can be fulfilled with water that will quench the deepest longings of your heart. For some of you right here this morning, this might be a call to repentance. Maybe no one knows what you're doing, what you're looking at, what relationship you're in. Not here to simply condemn you, I'm here to tell you there is something more. Take that in. That other stuff will lead you to nothing but destruction. It will not fulfill you.